Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is January the 17th, 2017. This is episode 1932 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Tuesday. Tuesday is a Just Jack show. That means it's just me, me and only me. No questions from the audience, no expert counsel, no special guests, no call-ins, nothing like that. Uh, just me and a subject. Today's subject is one we actually haven't talked about in a while, though Nick Ferguson just talked about it a little bit on the last Expert Council show. We're going to talk about starting seeds, specifically starting seeds because spring is coming. Spring is coming, you dolt. It's January 17th. Didn't you just say that? You Did you look outside? It's cold out. You know what? It is winter here today. It's actually winter here today. Um, it will be spring on Thursday in two days, and then it will probably be more like a summer day on Tuesday, and then by Wednesday it will be back to, to winter. So we have the bipolar dyslexic weather down here in Texas. Uh, there's a meme on, on Facebook I saw recently where it said uh, something like, you can't have summer and winter in the same week, and Texas says, hold my beer and watch this, right? So, um, yeah, I understand that, and I understand that most of the country – It's cold. There's ice storms. You look outside. There's you know four feet of uh, white global warming laying on the ground or whatever, and you, you think this guy's nuts. But do you know it's only 63 days until March 21st, which is the official first day of spring. And for many of you, your last frost date is going to hover around April 1st to April 15th, which is two to four more weeks. So we're looking at 75 to 80 days until you should be putting your tender plants in the ground. And many of those plants, uh, you want to start six to eight weeks before they go in the ground. That's about the perfect time. And I think a lot of times it's around six weeks. So that gives you a little buffer. I'd rather hold on to them a little later in the year in the pots and put them out when I know Uh, than to, uh, to have them, you know, at like nine weeks and they're starting to really feel cramped and they really need to get in the ground and you can't put them in the ground because it's still going to freeze and you get what I'm saying. But that's not that far away. I mean, if you're gonna, if you aren't ready to roll and you gotta gear up for this, you gotta get some stuff together, think about what you want to do, page through your seed catalogs and stuff like that. You got two, three weeks and you need to be putting seeds in dirt. Uh, in a lot of the country, and those of you a little further north, maybe you've got three, four-ish weeks, maybe five. I know my grandfather always started his tomato plants around the second week of February, which is about four weeks away. That was in Pennsylvania, so I'm just saying this is a timely topic. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, guys, what do you call a gun without ammo? Well, I call it an overpriced club or perhaps a way to get a loan at a pawn shop. So I keep a good supply of ammo around, and I always shop BulkAmmo.com when I need more. With shipping that's so fast you'll wonder how they do it, all the common calibers and a discount for MSB members on top of it, check out BulkAmmo.com today and give them a shot at your business. Hey folks, if silver and gold are not part of your current economic preparedness plan, they should be. In fact, for over eight years, I have recommended that listeners keep 5-10% of their wealth in precious metals as a wealth assurance program. And JM Bullion is my personal choice for all my precious metal purchases. They offer some of the best pricing in the industry and free shipping on top of it. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. 
And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Goliath Fishing Gear. They are the place for cool fishing shirts of all sizes, even 5XL. Inspired by the Goliath Grouper found in the Gulf of Mexico, this company is here to help you make the most of your next fishing trip. Check out Goliath Fishing Gear in the TSP Business Directory. I just want to pause there for a second and say that I really like that we decided, Blake and I together, to start doing these little little features, one person a day. You know, you probably get mentioned once or twice a year if you're a directory supporter, but it's really given me the opportunity to expose you to the, the breadth and variety uh, and, and the depth of businesses within this community. That sounds like a cool business. And it's one of those things people say, well, what could I go into business doing? Hey, what a niche. And remember, a niche online is not like a niche in a brick-and-mortar store. You can reach the whole world with a PayPal account and a website. So consider starting a business, and if you do have one, consider listing it to be a TSB business directory. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, and boy, shit is going south fast in the world. Um, 1932, the Lindenberg baby has been kidnapped. That's what Americans are freaking out about. Here comes the Dust Bowl. That's more for us to freak out about. Here's what we're probably not paying too much attention to and should be freaking about. We're all liberal fascists now. Uh, that's the one I'm going to read for you. But first, notable births. Donald Rumsfeld, living, Secretary of Defense under Ger Gerald Ford and George W. Bush. He hammered the pest press corps. Mario Cuomo, a major force in the Democratic Party, father of New York Governor Andrew Cuomo and Chris Cuomo at CNN. Ted Kennedy, the lesser brother of John and Robert. Boy, that's a good way to put it. The lesser brother of John and Robert. Senator Kennedy flipped his car in a river and swam to shore, leaving Mary Jo to die. Did I mention his dog's name was Splash? If you think I'm flipping him off, that is because I am. Uh, yeah, I could say stuff, but I won't. And in entertainment, Nichelle Nicholas, living, Lieutenant O'Hara on the original Star Trek series, Elizabeth Taylor, who was amazing in Cleopatra, Casey Kasem, the American Top 40 disc jockey, who I was told I could sound like whenever I wanted to back in the car days when I would play a little around with the FM radio voice. Donna Douglas, which is Sweet Emily May Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies. Sweet Ellie May Clampett in the Beverly Hillbillies, I'm so, sorry. Who I don't see living next to, and for some reason that makes me sad. Pat Morita, the cook on Happy Days. Mr. Miyagi and the Karate Kid. And the voice of the Emperor in Disney's Mulan. I also don't see living, and I didn't know Mr. Morita had passed away. That makes me even more sad. In other news, Amelia Earhart flies solo across the Atlantic to Ireland. The Purple Heart is received. The original was established by General George Washington. Oh, revived. I'm sorry. The Purple Heart is revived this year. Original established by General George Washington. Almost like they knew they would need it soon. Just saying. The German Enigma Code has been broken by Polish cipher Barrow. Wait. The movie said the English genius broke the code. As the Enigma machine became more complex, the code had to be broken again. Mars bars are introduced and Milky Way bars are repackaged. And Buck Rogers, Tarzan, Jack Benny, and the radio soap operas, what's next? Yeah, radio soap operas and families that gathered around the radio and listened to soap operas and pretty soon, fireside chats. I'm sure that'll make it to the history segment. But for now, we're all liberal fascists. I am asking for a liberal fascisti. For enlightened Nazis, H.G. Wells addressing the young liberals at Oxford in July of 1932. Adolf Hitler has become a nationalized German citizen in order to run for the office of president. If he could only get rid of that terrible Austrian accent of his, he sounds like a hick, I mean unsophisticated person. 
Hindenburg disagrees with many of Hitler's positions, and frankly, Hindenburg is the only one who could possibly beat Hitler in a straight-up election. So despite failing Hearth, Hindenburg runs for office. Hitler makes a deal, or gentleman's agreement, with a retired general and previous chancellor who wants to boot the current Catholic center party chancellor out of office. So the general will support Hitler for president. Hitler promises to support the general's choice for chancellor. Cross my heart and hope you die. There are lots of side deals made, and as it turns out, Hindenburg wins the presidency. Hindenburg offers the vice-chancellorship to Hitler, but he refuses. If the ch it is the chancellorship or nothing, however, the Nazi party clearly has the momentum. It's a fascist movement, a liberal fascism, as H.G. Wells puts it. As promised in a previous deal, Hindenburg dissolves parliament so that new elections can be run. Then he dissolves parliament again. By early next year, Hindenburg will agree to make Hitler chancellor. This will spell the end of democracy in, in, in Germany. And eventually the retired general will leave political life, but Hitler will remember him. Despite the endorsement, Hitler will have the man assassinated during the Night of Long Knives. But that is for later. For now, rest easy, if you can. My take by Alex Shrug, the whole plan created by the establishment German elders has been to manipulate the democratic process in order to eliminate democracy and go back to something resembling business as usual. Adolf Hitler was able to hijack that process at the end, inserting himself into as the beneficiary of the establishment's hard work and completely supplanting them. Hitler's movement was a youth movement. The cynical parents of the Roaring Twenties gave way to a hero generation. But don't let the label fool you. A hero generation gives you change you can believe in. They set things right as they perceive right to be. They are energetic, motivated, and absolutely love those Hugo Boss uniforms the Nazis wear. As it said in a Hugo Boss ads, paraphrasing, supplying National Socialists since 1924. It was actually 1928, but why quibble? They provided uniforms to the Hitler Youth, the SS, and the SA, which were the brown shirts. Yeah, Hugo Boss provided the uniforms to the SA, the SS, and the Hitler Youth. Just put that out there. Um, so the Night of Long Knives I'm sure we'll hear about, but uh, not only did the general get the knife, but about 5,000 members of the SA that Hitler thought could be uh, considered threats to him in the future got the knife too. Yeah, it was a lot of long knives. I mean, like I said, we'll sure about hear about that. But I, I think a lot of people would wonder, well, how did this really happen? Why were enough people that had power at the time willing to go along with installing Hitler as chancellor? Hitler was a was a rogue. Hitler was on the rise with as a populist in in Germany. And the old guard felt that, well, once we have him into the chancellorship, even though he's technically in charge, he'll have to deal with the Reichstag, and we'll be able to manipulate him, we'll be able to control him. This actually will let us, like, as bad as it is, if if we put him into this position and we install him, we'll be able to control him. Well, I'm sure we'll hear more about why that didn't quite work out in future history segments. With that, I want to get into the main topic of today's show, which, of course, is Starting Seeds. And I, I want to actually suggest that you might want to go way back and listen to an old episode, um, because when I was putting this one together, I, I remember covering this before, and I looked up this old episode, and I thought, man, there's a lot of great stuff in that episode I really should revisit, but I don't want to, because I want to do new things. So there, there has to be some crossover here with uh, Seed Starting. But I think I did a Seed Starting, starting Primer for 2014, I think it was. I'll look it up. I'll put it in the show notes. And in that, I go through a lot of things that kind of put people more at ease with starting season, realizing it's not like 
as complicated as you think. And specifically, the part you might want to listen to is just the beginning, where I talk about how seeds germinate in nature. How we think of like everything has to be perfect, and nature's so harsh, but yet nature does end up providing the perfect environment if the seed is endemic, if it's native to the area, or if it's native to an area with similar temperature fluctuations. And that that is what we're trying to replicate. Now, I don't really want to go into that today uh, and just redo an episode from two and a half years ago, so I'll link to it. But I want you to kind of just, without going into it, kind of set the stage for that. Nature actually provides the perfect environment for seeds to start. Only the healthiest and strongest make it. But there's a lot that we think of that's really harsh in nature where nature provides things like an understory within a field. So we think of an understory in a forest, but a field has this understory and a seed falls, and it kind of trickles and finds its way down and eventually ends up in soil contact. But it's cold, and it's it, it, it's a time of the year when the days are short, and the seed just doesn't germinate. It goes kind of dormant, and it knows when to grow. And when it grows, it's growing up through all this old, dead vegetative material that acts like mulch. And I'll leave it for that. If you want more of that, go back and listen to the older episode. I want to kind of start out with... The monetary case for starting seeds and, uh, you know, why you would consider doing your own seeds other than just getting a great deal of variety. Because here's the truth. Things have changed a lot. There's a lot better technology now for starting your own seeds. And in spite of that, the people doing the work are charging more, it seems, for them. And a lot of the smaller people that used to make it affordable and make the big guys compete for your plant business seem to have switched things up and gone all with ornamentals. So what I mean by that is back when I started Survival Podcast, gee, over eight years ago now, eight and a half years, I, I remember that you could go to Home Depot, to Lowe's. Uh, there's a place down here called Mike's Nursery. There's a few of those. There's a Callaway's. There's some independent nurseries that are bigger nurseries. And you could always find you know, a good variety of peppers and, and lettuces and stuff like that were already started. Uh, and you still can, to a degree, but you can find them through a big part of the early year. And the big thing is, you could find them either in six packs for like maybe three bucks, so you're looking at 50 cents a plant, or you could find them in like small two-inch pots for like a dollar a piece or sometimes less, sometimes 75 cents. Sometimes they were a dollar. I remember one place, Mike's, they were like a dollar uh, but you could get 12 plants for 10 bucks or something like that. So somewhere between 50 cents and a dollar a plant. And if you're going to plant, you know, 40 or 50 plants, and you can just go to a good supplier and get good, healthy, stocky plants that are in great shape and ready to go on the ground, and maybe you buy a few extras just for some, you know, loss and, and what have you, and you can get out of it for under 100 bucks. You know, buying again 40 to 60 plants, even, or if you're buying six packs at three bucks a thing, you can get a hundred plants for fifty dollars. It's actually difficult for me to make a financial case to you as to why you should start, you know, a couple dozen tomato plants, a couple dozen pepper plants, and things like that. It, it really is. But what I've seen happen over these last, you know, eight, nine years, and it seems like really over the last four or five. I almost see no six-packs anymore, no little plants. What I see now are all the bonnies of the world and stuff like that, and they're in three- to four-inch you know, fancy-looking peat pots with a wrapper around them. And at the time of the year that you really want your plants, when they're just getting them in, 
you know, they're selling them for three to four dollars a plant. Three ninety eight seems to be a pretty big going rate around here anyway with tomato plants and stuff like that. Now, if I want to put in a hundred plants at three dollars a plant, that's three hundred dollars. And all of a sudden, that garden doesn't look very economical to me anymore. Now, I still would say at this point, you want to put in a dozen plants. You know, investing in some of the things you might need to to start your own plants and the time it takes may not be worth it. But if you're going to put in, you know, fifty or more, there's a huge financial case due to this this change. And what I saw first was. You stop being able to go down to you know Home Depot and buy six packs of like a lot of things that I bought and I because I didn't want to waste my time personally messing with were things like broccoli. I could buy them early in the year. Uh, I could get them out when there was still some frost, but broccoli don't give a damn. It's like a honey badger. If it's not a hard freeze. It's good to go even when it's young. And I'd have a broccoli crop before I even got my main crop in the ground. And I could go buy again six packs for you know a dollar ninety eight. Uh, at at Home Depot sometimes, uh, so between a dollar ninety eight and two ninety eight, depending on when and where and what, and they just kind of started disappearing. So I started looking to the smaller nurseries like Mike's around here, which again is like a smaller you know multi location, but they're big locations, and they still had either the six packs or the small uh, stuff for like a dollar a plant or whatever, and then they stopped. Seeming to carry that, and they went to more of like the bigger plants for three to four dollars a plant. So I looked to the mom and pops, and as I, I started looking through them, they would have maybe some stuff, but even they seem to go. And because I and maybe some of you that live in a little bit more you know edgy rural like areas, maybe you don't have this problem, but around here it seems that everybody wants to grow uh, ornamentals because there's a bigger market. And a longer season market, and they sell better, and they make more money. So I understand that, but that leaves me sitting there looking at this little plant, you know, this little tomato plant that's four inches tall, and the guy wants four, five, four or five bucks for it, basically a dollar an inch for this, this plant that still has a long time to go before it produces, and a lot of potential to end up dead. It could get a tomato could get blight. Uh, I could get you know a, a problem with flea beetle or something like that on my my peppers or whatever. So I, I'm spending all this money and then I'm still taking this risk because this is not a plant that's in production. You want one of those? They're like fifteen to twenty dollars. And when I look at that market, it, it makes a lot more sense to go back to seed. Again, if I can get seed, if I can get plants for fifty cents a plant, I still might start some of my own seeds for variety and things like that. But if I want to put in a dozen tomato plants and I can buy them for six bucks. If I want to put in, you know, two dozen broccoli plants and I can buy it for twelve bucks, I'm probably going to go that route. And that's something to think about because if you get good at seed starting, if you come up with a good system, then you might find yourself with an opportunity to sell to people that are tired of playing three to four dollars a plant, three dollars for a freaking piece, a couple sprigs of mint shoved in a pot, because that's what Walmart's selling now. That's what Lowe's is selling now. That's what Home Depot is selling out, and that's what even the smaller nurseries around here, anyway, are generally selling now. Because I'll tell you, if you can find a good price and, and source of plants, and the timing's right, and I'll talk about the timing in a second, then there's a pretty good case for letting somebody else worry about them until they go in the ground. I don't have to take care of them. I don't have to worry about them getting too big. I don't have to worry about them, you know, not being watered. I don't have to worry about any of that. I just pick them up the weekend I want them. I put them in the ground that weekend, and life is good. There's a case for that. But this is the other reason I see for um, starting your own seeds now. 
as this whole thing occurred, you would think the quality of the plants has gone up. What I've actually noticed is the quality of the plants are going down. Because they're selling these plants for more per unit, they're selling less of them. That means that these plants are sitting on shelving at these stores for a longer period of time, or sitting on tables at these stores for longer periods of time. And they're being made, and I don't mean any disrespect, but they're being maintained generally by people that make a few dollars over minimum wage, uh, who go out once in the morning and once in the afternoon to water them. Maybe. And a lot of them are in small pots, and if they're not under, like a lot of times now you see, you've got all of your plants, your, your vegetable plants at these box stores, not back in the nursery under the shade netting, but out in the open out front, so, so that they're right there when people show up. Well, there's a bunch of problems with that. One, the plants that are out where they can actually get sun, bake in the sun all day and dry out, and even if they don't get really bad off, they're subject to being shocked and then watered and shocked and then watered and shocked and then watered. They get the shit beat out of them with the wind, which also exasperates the drying out period. So a lot of times these plants have been dried out many, many times, and you go look at them and they don't look very happy, and that's part of why. They're also drenched every time that they're watered. They're not watered with any sort of you know, care and consideration. They just soak them because they believe, well, they'll stay wet longer. Well, not sitting out in the sun, they won't. Not sitting out in the wind, they won't. Then the other thing is they have these display stands where they're stacked like You know, like you stack toothpaste or, you know, peanut butter jars at a store. So the ones out in the front can get sun, the ones in the back can't. And you get a lot of plants that look really sad or spindly because they were shoved into the back. And maybe they didn't get watered as much, even though they didn't dry out as much. And all of this has just kind of really hit the, 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 the quality. Because the big gardeners are doing what I'm doing. They're tired of it. They're tired of being told they're going to pay three bucks for a plant, so it's it's the it's the, the 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 suburban mom that put in the four by four garden bed that she bought for two hundred dollars made out of four cedar boards that are you know four feet long uh, and a couple things and, and and bought you know expensive uh, buy the bag soil and dumped it in there that's buying two tomato plants and two pepper plants and a couple flowers that's buying these things now instead of the gardener that used to say hey my time's worth too much and would go in and buy four or five flats of vegetables because they're not there. So that doesn't create the turnover. That doesn't create a, an environment where these plants are constantly being cycled through, and therefore the plants are in the care of the retail nursery longer who generally doesn't do a good job of it. So you're, you're being asked for more money for a, a lower quality product, even though it might be a little bit larger. And, and to me, you really have to start thinking about taking care of this yourself again. Uh, the self-sufficiency thing with that is obvious. I understand that. But again, I'm coming at this from just a, a plain monetary and quality standpoint. And also some of the chemicals that might be used on these plants may not be the best because um, they're just not. They're just not. Anyway, it's actually a shame because I actually appreciated the ability to buy plants Uh, when it was really more available to me. I know somebody will comment in the comments today, Jack, there's this place right down the road for me, and they sell plants for $2 a six-pack, and I don't know what you're talking about. They're all over the place. Not here, man. And that's great. Go give them your business. Uh, and if that doesn't exist around you and you're looking for a business, consider that as a business. I mean, I think that that's something that really is a, a, a hole in the market now in a lot of parts of the country. So I wanted to 
change things up a little bit today and do kind of like a little bit of a throwback show, I guess. I did quite a bit of shows back when I was in the car. And for those of you who knew the show, I did this show for the first 18 months out of my 2006.5 Jetta Diesel TDI. There's a little bit of that case in case I'm coming through. Anyway, um, and I was looking for all these different, you know, I did 18 months worth of shows, a show a day. You start without having the ability to do interviews, without having to do, you know, listener call shows and stuff like that. You start looking for variety. So I started just paging through plant catalogs and seed catalogs, and I would do shows where it was just covering different varieties. So I thought we'd do a mini version that day, and I'd give you two interesting seed varieties to, to consider trying from each of the four seed companies that support our MSV. The first one is from High Mowing Organic Seeds. They're a great supporter of the show uh, and discount discount vendor to the MSV. And it's called Indigo Cherry Drop Tomato. I haven't grown this tomato yet, but as soon as I saw it, I ordered a packet of the seeds for it. It looks absolutely gorgeous. It's It looks like dark purple little mini Maribel plums. Um, I've read a little bit about it online. It is an incredibly good-tasting uh, old heirloom tomato. Uh, date of maturity from set out is 65 days to production. So that's the day, you know, the day you put the little plant in the ground, if you follow the schedule exactly. Um, probably six weeks before that, the seeds go into the pot. Uh, they are extremely prolific, producing in good conditions up to 500 fruits per plant. And I think a lot of you will find, especially in, in certain areas where it's really hot like it is here in Texas, that you may do better with cherry tomatoes, you know, under shade cloth and things like that than you will with your big beef steaks and stuff like they typically grow in the Northeast. The next one also from high mowing, uh, seeds are, are called shushito peppers, shushito pepper. And uh, if you've ever been to like a really good sushi place that also does some cooked food, you might have seen these done kind of as an appetizer. Uh, they are, they look like an evil little green chili pepper that will burn your brains out of your skull. Uh, in fact, there is a rumor, but I've yet to find one, and I've eaten a lot of them that, you know, one out of a hundred are blazing hot and will burn your scalp off, and you never know which one you're gonna get one. I, I've never gotten one yet, and like I said, I've eaten a lot of them. They're a little crinkly, kind of, uh, banana shaped, uh, looks like a long, habanero, I guess, like an elongated habanero, much longer than a habanero though, without that kind of pineapple point to it. And, uh, but they're mild, they're green, and they really take flavor in. Uh, they have a skin that chars easily. So, the, like the traditional Japanese way to do these is, you know, a blazing hot skillet, braise them with some oil for just, you know, a, just until they're soft, and until the, the, they taste right. And then while they're screaming hot, you put them on a plate, and then you, you give them a garnish of a thing called bonito flakes. And bonito flakes are actually made from skipjack tuna. And it's actually a pretty cool protein source to consider keeping in your, your storage. And when you put them on hot food like that, they actually look like they come alive. It looks like something like from Star Trek that would be on a Klingon's table or something because they move and they glisten and they taste amazing. And with the peppers, they're just awesome. So that's another plant to consider uh, growing with your seed starting this year. Uh, moving on to uh, Victory Seed Company, who is another supporter of the uh, MSB. Uh, they have a product called Kragner Summer Lettuce, and summer spelled S-O-M-M-E-R. Uh, that's, a, that's a German thing. And uh, this is a good mid-season lettuce. It's pretty slow to bolt in summer heat. For me, that means it's, it's a good uh, spring to late spring lettuce. 
Uh, for me, unless I'm under shade and maybe growing in wicking beds or, or aquaponics or something, I can forget about summer lettuce. For you guys in more temperate climates, this is a, you can grow this like in Pennsylvania, you go this right through your summer. It's a, it's a really great variety. Tastes really good. It looks cool. It's kind of a buttercrisp style lettuce. Uh, something you might want to check out. And, uh, next up from, also from Victory Seed Company, you might want to consider a squash this year. And I'm sure I'm saying this wrong because I'm not French. Galix de Essines squash. Uh, ugly wart co covered squash, I guess is what I would call it as a common name. It looks like a small, You know, and I'm talking five to ten pound adult fruit size uh, pepper, uh, pepper. I'm sorry, squash, and uh, it's got these warts all over it. It's a deep orange flesh. It's a great winter squash, good long keeper, thick rind, and it has the flavor of almost a chestnut going on. Like imagine chestnut flavor roasted into butternut squash. That's kind of what this flavor is. I've never been able to successfully grow them here. I have way too many uh, squash vine borers. I've not been able to grow anything except quick-yielding summer squashes like zucchinis, and eventually they get those, but I usually get a decent yield off them first. And then the other thing I've been able to grow down here are just plain old Waltham butternut because the squash borers come and they try to get in that stock on those, and they just it's like rope. They can't get in. But if you live where you can typically grow uh, decent squash, you might want to consider Gaelic Day of Scenes. By the way, all these are linked in the show notes today so that you can just go by and click on them and, and link right over. Next up, I have a couple for you from uh, NE Seed. Uh, NE Seed became a supporter of the MSB last year. We're lucky to have them. When you want to buy large quantities, they're a good place to look. And one of the seeds that they have uh, that I recommend you take a look at are Purple Tomatillos. Uh, tomatillos are great, especially for those of you that live in an area where you want something for your salsa, but you have a lot of problems with tomato blight or other tomato diseases. Tomatillos are like the honey badger of that world. They don't give a damn. Now, they're not going to make a nice slicing tomato you're going to put on a uh, hamburger or whatever. Uh, but the purple tomatillos are a little more mild than the green tomatillos. They make a great salsa. And if, those of you that remember back when I lived in uh, Arlington, I had my little garden in Arlington, and I had the tomatillos that, like, I had to take a machete and cut my way between the rows because they spread and hit the ground and rooted into the other beds. And I had a tomatillo jungle. It was these. I uh, was growing these purple tomatillos, and uh, they're fantastic. They're easy to grow. They're damn hardy, and they look cool as shit. Uh, they are awesome uh, if you just take them and cut them in half and throw them on the grill uh, down, you know, uh, cut side down and grill them a little bit and then kind of chop them up and mix them with a little bit of jalapenos and use that as like a condiment with just about anything that you would want to eat. It's they're, they're that simple to make something cool out of. Another one out of any seed is something I think a lot of you guys will really dig when you see it. Uh, it's called Peppermint OP Swiss Chard. It's, uh, if, if a lot of you have seen Swiss Chards that have, you know, either just the plain old green stems or they have yellow or they have like a red or a golden, uh, almost look like rhubarb sometimes. The peppermint is what you would expect. It's a pink, a bright pinkish red and white, but it's not like one stalk's red and one stalk's white. It actually looks like a striped peppermint. And it, it doesn't taste like pepper. It just has that color. It is awesome. And grown as a baby chard and done as like a saute or something, it looks really cool. Uh, those of you that have not been fans of Swiss chard, 
I challenge you either to try it as a baby green in salads, because as it gets bigger, it does get a little tough, or chop it up, get a, a skillet, get it screaming hot with, with some bacon grease in it, uh, and uh, throw a handful of chopped apples in there, give them a whirl first to soften them a bit, and then throw your shard in just, just till it is wilted, get it out of the pan so you don't overdo it, and then the bacon that you made the bacon grease from, the little crumbles, Put that on top of that, it will blow you the frick away, and you'll want to grow this stuff because in the South, I can actually grow it with protection as a perennial. It'll come back for, well, it's really a biennial for two seasons, but I've had some that's gone longer than that. Uh, next one, this is from Terroir Seeds, and uh, this is one I've talked about in the past, but not for a long time. I grew a lot of these in Arkansas. They're called uh, Cucamelon or Mouse Melon. And they're not really a melon, and they're not really a cucumber. I guess they're more of a gherkin. And uh, what they look like is a tiny little watermelon. How tiny? About the size of a, of a grape. And they have a cucumberish-like flavor. They're crunchy as hell. They, they, they this little plant. You think they're wow. There's you see these little flowers on it, and they it's it's you know kind of like you know. The smaller the, the fruit, the smaller the flower. And the flower looks so small, you think that's not going to produce anything. And next you know, you see these little bulblets on there. And then one day you come out and there's like dozens of these things. I ate them mainly like just picked them and ate them off the, the vine or, or thrown into a salad. Uh, they're really good. You can also pickle them. If I grow them this year, and I don't know if I will or not, but if I do, uh, I'm going to try lacto-fermenting them. I, I think they would be really, really badass lacto-fermented. So they're again, they're called... Mouse melons, and uh, if you want to feel like a giant man, take a picture of yourself holding one of those because it looks just like a big watermelon with the stripes and all on it. And then the uh, the last one I have for you from Terroir Seeds is Romanian sweet pepper. These are a small pepper. They kind of look like a mariachi pepper, but that's a hot pepper, but these are sweet. They'll come in yellows and reds and oranges on the plant for you, all different colors. Uh, they're about the size of a, a good-sized jalapeno, except they taper to a point like a Fresno, but no heat. They make great little stuffed peppers. They make great grilling peppers. They make great, you know, grab a handful of them, just chop them up, throw them in a salad. Uh, they're a great fryer. They just have an incredible flavor. They're very, very thick-walled, and they're cool. So there's some, as we're talking about starting seeds today, there's some some plants you consider you can consider starting for yourself. I want to kind of talk about my perspective from what Nick gave you guys last week. And his, and I, I agree with everything he said, but I have a different take on some of it for, for some of you anyway, and for myself included. What Nick's basic summation was is that the best source of light that you can use for starting your seeds is the sun. Whether you have a good south-facing window and you can build a reflector around, I think it's a fine idea. Assuming your glass isn't taking out, like a lot of the modern glass pretty much just kills and nixes all the parts of the UV spectrum that the plant really needs to do well. So that's something to think about too. What kind of window are you, you using? Because it might be really great for energy efficiency, but shitty for growing plants. And so that's something to think about. Um, or, you know, building your little mini greenhouse outside or something like that. I've done all that stuff and it all works. There's a, there's a big case, though, made with today's technology for considering starting indoors. I'm going to give you uh, some material, a material list today that you could set up a, 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 a plant system for between $220 to $300, depending on how sophisticated you want to get with it, 
that could start hundreds and hundreds of plants for you in perfectly ideal conditions because of new innovations in grow technology. And here's the problem for a lot of us when it comes to starting seeds outdoors. And again, my grandfather had a cold frame and started his pepper seeds and his tomato seeds every year in a cold frame. It was made with this huge, heavy glass old door with like a block and tackle, and it hung from a trellis that he had his Concord grapes on. And if it got, it was going to be really cold, and he had his plants in there, he would go outside and just run a, a light bulb and have a light bulb in there to keep it from freezing. And, and it, it was in the ground, you know, a couple feet deep, and it worked. And on top of the light bulb, we would, you know, usually put some composting manure on the bottom and receive some residual heat from that. Uh, he would go out every morning and pull it open and then shut it down at night. And, you know, it worked and it worked good. And I've had situations before where I've used greenhouses. And as long as I put some supplemental heating in there, it's, you know, to get through the nights where it freezes, it worked and it worked good to a degree. Because here's the reality though. A plant is going to grow significantly only when there's light on it. And right now, we're not getting a whole lot of light. First of all, we're getting, like today, it looks like it's 6 o'clock. Well, it looks like it's this time of year. It looks like it's 5.15 at night right now. It feels like 5.15 at night, uh, at night right now. We get a lot of cloudy days. We don't have, even have sun to bounce the light around, I mean, snow to bounce the light around like they do in the north. So there, there's that. And then there's just daylight duration. How long is the sun up? And then there's the ebb and flow of temperature, which can be good for plants to a degree. But when you're trying to build really healthy, strong seedlings from plants that are not supposed to grow in the wintertime where you live, like a tomato... Being able to control the temperature, there's a lot of value to you. Being able to control the airflow. And if you think about it, your house is set up perfectly to make it an environment that's comfortable to you. Somewhere between probably 65 and 78 degrees. The light is probably on from the time you get up until sometime near when you go to bed. So 12 to 14 hours a day. And you can have lights just for your plants that do that. Um, you have a breeze of some sort in your home with fans or air conditioning or central heat or something that kind of moves some air, but yet it never has wind beating the shit out of anything. Plants like all of this, and the parts of it that aren't quite where we want, the microenvironment that we grow our plants in, we can adapt and we can adjust to that. So I think that, that growing indoors is a good idea. Now, Nick talked about either using T8 or T5 uh, fluorescent lighting. I think there's, uh, I've done that. It works. There's nothing wrong with it. And I think that especially if you can get some of the equipment for free or cheaply used or you can find really good deals on it, there's a good case for that too. And back when I started this show over eight years ago, when I grew things indoors, I used, you know, daylight spectrum fluorescent lights because they worked and they were reasonably available and affordable. But it's now 2017, and things have come a long way, and we're doing indoor farming all over the world, and and we're doing in certain, some states legally and in some states illegally. You know, we're growing the the, the herb of herbs, right? The uh, the sacred herb cannabis, and, and all of these things, whether it's tomatoes and peppers or pot or whatever it is, is being grown with 
you know, LED full spectrum lights with the reds and the blues and things like that. And, and you've probably seen, you know, videos or pictures of vertical farms and things like that where they're using this LED lighting. It, it does cost a little more, sort of. It's getting to where it doesn't really, uh, for the same amount of grow area anyway. And it, but, Any cost differential is going to pay itself back very, very quickly, just in energy costs alone. I think Nick said something like his two, uh, two eight spectrum lights, whatever they were last, uh, week were costing him around $35 a month in electricity. And, and they're probably each one of those is, 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 you know, each of those eight times two is pulling, uh, probably 50 watts, 100 watts, something like that, you know, where, You can get the light I'm going to tell you about today, and it's a 45-watt light, but once it's up and running, you throw a kilowatt meter on it, and actually it's drawing 30 watts. So you can have you know that light running for a lot less than one of these big you know, uh, fluorescent things. It costs less in the end. Uh, it costs about the same out the door, I think, right now. The light that I have found is made by a company called Kingbow. And I have looked at a lot of these lights in this range, a 45-watt range. There's a lot of more expensive, higher-intensity lights that are really made for people that want to grow a tomato plant or a non-tomato plant that you smoke indoors in a grow tent where you have this big grow tent, you have one or two of them up at the roof, and they're putting this huge amount of light out, and, and it gives that that whole little grow tent, uh, a place for one or two or four or five big or six big plants to grow. That type of light intensity is not necessary and not really that advantageous. But what you want to do is put one seed in the ground and grow it up to about four or five inches tall. It, it's just not needed. So I kind of zoned in on this 45-watt size These are generally square, and they're generally, depending on who you get them from, somewhere between 12 and 14 inches square. This makes them perfect to suspend from your average Sterilite-style um, shelving. And that fits nicely in a lot of the really inexpensive, low-cost plant tents, which we don't even really need to completely tent in if all we're doing is starting tomatoes and all instead of trying to grow this tropical plant that's, you know, for other purposes, what a lot of people are using these for, up to your head height. We could leave that front open and, and avoid the use of a fan altogether and still get the advantage of controlling that temperature and getting a lot of that light reflected and bounced around. We could even build something like that for ourselves. And I'm going to give you off-the-shelf stuff today. But this Kimbo Reflector 45-watt LED grow light has 225 LED 6-band full-spectrum And lights like this, not the big expensive 300-watt things or whatever, lights in this class a few years ago were selling for $100 to $200. And all I could think of when I looked at them was not yet. Over the years, I've watched them come down, and some of these lights now are selling for like $18. And every one of them I've looked at, and you look at the reviews, people say they work great for you know a month or two. This was the first one, and I've been watching for this, and I've been researching this for a while, to come down into what I consider to be a fair price that has a good reputation. You can go on YouTube and see people that have actually grown plants under it and seen it produce good results, 
and you look at the reviews, and right now this light on uh, Amazon has 32 customer reviews, and they're all five-star. And So, great. So what's it cost, Jack? $32.99. If you look at that, And you think to yourself, self, what I'd like to do is get one of these, you know, cheap plastic shelves. A lot of you probably have one at home that are usually about three foot wide and about five foot tall and a little less than two feet deep. And I want to, I want to kind of fully light that. Well, you would need six of them. You need six of them. And, uh, that would run you $198. Now, I know what you'll say is that that's not exactly inexpensive, Jack. Well, I'd kind of like to point out that, you know, that rack with four of these lights would probably start as many plants as most of you would ever need to start. So I'm talking about fully outfitting this thing here for 198 bucks. Those racks will hold about three trays of, um, of six packs. So you're looking without crowding 72 plants for shelf, per shelf. So if all you really needed to start were 72 plants or less, you could do that with two lights for 66 bucks in a plastic shelving unit that you already have. But if you wanted to kind of go a little bit large scale and you did put those six lights in there, well, you could go and you could plant yourself 216 plants. And as far as I'm concerned at that point, in one season your lights are paid for if you were paying a dollar a plant like you used to be able to. Or you're even close to recouping it because of your own flexibility and self-sufficiency at 50 cents a plant, even though you've only come up to about halfway to the cost of the lights. And there is other things that you might need, including seeds and soil and stuff like that. But you kind of get my point. And then the other thing that I think that we need to realize that we have with this type of technology available at this price today, I remember when I was a young boy, My grandmother bought this thing for starting plants. It, you've probably seen them before. It was metal. The metal was white. It had two sets of shelves. Uh, it would hold probably a little bit more than, than what I just described. Uh, there was like four different trays at each level, so eight trays, and each tray was significantly larger than a, a six-pack tray. Uh, they were deeper, and it was so you could put different size pots all in there. And there was a, a light array at the top and the bottom. And my grandparents, these are my grandparents from my mother's side. I talk about them less, uh, mainly because they were both out of my life by the time I moved to Pennsylvania. One had passed away, and the other one had just lived where I, I couldn't see him very much anymore. But they were really good to me, and they taught me a lot of the things I know as well during the time I lived in Florida mostly. And I remember that they were not people that, that did poorly financially. They didn't generally have a long discussion before they out, went out and bought, and they say, a new frying pan or something like that, which my other grandparents would have. You know, Now they had their cast iron stuff that was 100 years old, but when they had to buy anything outside of the usual groceries, it was a discussion, do we really want to do this? My other grandparents were a little bit more affluent. My grandfather was a, uh, a retired uh, chief warrant officer. Then he had a civilian career that went 20 years. He had a second retirement. And then he worked at Jacksonville University as a security guard in his retirement years. So he was fine. But I remember that they had a pretty long discussion. And I remember like being with her at this one nursery she used to go to and over and over looking at this thing. And then finally one day they bought it. 
And I remember asking her, Grandma, why did it take you so long to buy this? She said, it's damn expensive. And I said, well, what's that mean? And she said it was almost $500. This would have been about 1982. It was basically fluorescent lights and, 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 and the, the kind that, that Nick was talking about, like T5, you know, uh, the higher wavelength, like the 10,000. Uh, but it was over 500 bucks in the 80s. Today you can buy these, and I don't know my grandmother will like this because it's like bathed in, in pink blue, right? Um, it, it doesn't look as pretty, but the plant sees it the way a plant sees, and a plant sees differently than you. And, and I just think this technology is an incredible value today. And, and I think there is a case for being able to hold and maintain temperatures where you want them, and I think there's a pretty good case for grow tents as well. A grow tent is what it sounds like, and it's it's just basically a a tent that has reflective material, usually has a door that, that kind of zips up. They'll have vents in them because a lot of people run them, again, growing large plants of whatever variety you want, uh, you know, up to five foot, six foot tall type things, or even taller. And uh, they'll have fans running in and filters and all kinds of filters because some of those plants have a certain smell. All right, so they're kind of outfitted for that. But they're perfectly fine for the legitimate use of starting seedlings. And that reflector inside them kind of bounces light everywhere. And you can get a nice one that's 48 by 24 by 60. So four foot um, wide by two foot deep by 60 inches tall or five feet tall. And there just happens to be a lot of those Sterilite shells, and I have a link to the Sterilite shelf, that, you know, an example. I would say most of you probably don't need to be picking one up on Amazon, but the Sterilite shelves, you know, running like the 34.5 by 14 by 57 inches. Um, so they fit perfectly inside one of those tents, almost like they made those tents because they figured that out. They also make the same tent that I'm talking about, in one that's 48 by 48 by 78. Well, then two of them could fit in there, right? And just have them deeper. So there's a lot of options with that. And again, with these tents, you get a lot of light bouncing around and a lot more efficiency. The, the reason they have these places to put fans in them, though, isn't just because you might want filters because of the smell, okay? They also have them in there because things can get too humid. So... A simple box fan can work a lot of times, or a small fan, just to put some airflow through these. Then you've got this perfect environment. You, th these 45-watt these LEDs don't generate a lot of heat um, compared to like the bigger lights. So you don't really have a heat problem. You kind of have like this nice little warm area. And then you have your seeds in a place where they're getting everything exactly the way that they need it. And what it will allow you to do, honestly, is to start your seeds a little bit closer to the time that you're going to put them in the ground because you're going to get a lot faster growth rate and a lot more health out of them. So you actually might even want to grow them closer to your in-the-ground time. So the, tree, the, 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 the plant that you were going to give eight with a tomato that's really slow growing, you're going to see, you sow the seeds eight weeks. You might sow it six or five weeks which is less time for you to take care of it, less time for something to go wrong, and that lets you kind of time your installations a lot better. And again, I'm saying if you can put together, if you look at the, the setup that I've uh, kind of advised here today with the tent, the rack, and the lights, you're right at $293 
for a three-tiered system. And you can probably cut the cost and do a little bit better because you could build your own shelving out of wood. But then remember, if you build shelving out of wood and you're going to put plants on it and water them, you're going to have leakage. So you're going to have to have some way to, to if you're doing this indoors, like in a bedroom or something, some place for that water to go and be collected and some way for it to fall through down to collection. What we've done building shelving for greenhouses is simply build the shelving out of two by pressure treated two by fours, you know, turn like you were doing decking. So they're, they're, they're turned long way. So they have more structural integrity. And then we just take cheap fencing like, uh, like red brand fencing and just roll it, cut it and nail it down to that. And then you have a perfect shelf and it's very inexpensive to do. So there's a lot of things you could do. You don't have to do a tent. You could build the shelving to any size you want and you could simply get uh, a reflective uh, material like for insulation at like a Home Depot or a Lowe's, and you could just attach like the foam board with the reflective on it. You could get that inexpensively. You can cut that with a razor knife and just attach it straight to wooden shelving and basically build a reflector that way. You can do this any way you want, but it's pretty amazing to me today that we have an off-the-self solution uh, that will allow someone to start at least in the neighborhood of 220 plants uh, per, per, per roll Uh, for about $300 and do it with technology that my grandmother couldn't even have conceived of. And I think over the years that price will continue to come down. I, I do see a day when lights of the quality that I'm talking about here today, this, this Kingbow reflector light are going to be 15 to 20 bucks a piece. And at that point, it's going to be really tough to not make the case to start producing a lot of food indoors for, for most people. Because of so many problems that are eliminated. So that's kind of out of the scope of today, but it, it is something to think about. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the actual process of starting seeds, though it's not that complicated. I think that the best thing most people can do is buy a, a pre-mixed uh, seed starter, uh, vegetable starter mix, uh, organic uh, preferably. It's fast, it's easy, it's done. But the reality is if you have a source of good compost, um, some sand, specifically sharp sand would be best, um, some peat moss and some perlite, mixing those about equal actually makes a really good potting mix. And so if you live somewhere where you can pick up, like I can, a yard of compost for $40, bucks, you know, you can make an awful lot of potting soil with that. I have mixed emotions about peat moss. Listening to Howard Garrett over the years, he has a lot of ecological concern about the peat uh, being extracted, which I share some of that. I don't know that it's quite the horror that we've been led to believe. Uh, in, in any event, the amount of peat moss that I would use to start some seeds is pretty insignificant to how much peat moss is going to be used anyway. But the better case that he made is that what we really want in our soils, is biological activity, good funguses, good bacteria, and nematodes and all that. And that peat bogs are sterile, and peat is sterile, and we're introducing a sterile medium into that, that, that likes to stay sterile into our soils. I don't know how valid that is, though, when you're mixing it, because there's a reason peat bogs stay sterile. Uh, it's, it, it has to do with basically no oxygen, uh, and there's nothing but peat in there. So I don't know that that's really the case of people have been using it for a long time. 
So it's up to you if you don't want to use it. You could use compost, sand, and, and, and perlite uh, with, let's say, uh, 50% compost, 25% uh, perlite, and uh, uh, 25% sand and get a pretty good starting mixture as well. So we're going to take our starting mixture. We're going to put it into whatever containers we're going to start our plants with. I like six-packs because they're convenient. Generally speaking, by the time a plant has gotten to the size where it really needs to come out of a six-pack, it can go on the ground. It can go on the ground. I don't really like the nine-packs as much. They're generally a little bit smaller cells. There's not as much room for them. Uh, there's also four-packs that are a little bit bigger. Uh, you can't fit as many seeds or many plants in the same area. But if you if you can fit as many as you want into an area, they'll give you a little bit more room, a little bit larger root mass, and a little bit more space for everybody. But those are the ones I like to use. I've also used just plain old two-inch pots. Uh, that's about as big as I like to go because I don't like to grow plants much bigger than that. And I like when I pull that plant out of that pot and put it into the ground, I like it to be a little bit root-bound. Not a lot, but a little bit. I want it to be, I don't want to pull it out and like the, the dirt just falls off it and it's sad and it doesn't really have a, a good established root structure. Um, I'm not going to get into planting today, but I will say that I usually tease those roots out a little bit when I plant. Uh, so we, we fill our containers, we put our seeds in them, we label everything, we keep them moist, we keep them in the right conditions, and if all goes well, we end up with great plants. And, and, and it really, I think people have made it such a spooky thing, like gardeners are like alchemists or something, that we've made it more complicated than it is. If we're using a good potting mix with, with a good amount of nutrient in it from an organic source, um, we don't need to do a lot of fertility uh, adds to our young plants. In fact, we want to give them only what they need, only the bare bones, because that will make them be more aggressive with developing roots. But by all means, if you have seedlings that just look unhappy and they're getting the right amount of light, they're in a good temperature, you can tell it's a nutrient deficiency, give them supplemental nitrogen, give them sup supplemental N NPK, whatever it takes, go ahead and give it to them. But generally, we don't need to, to, to worry about a lot. Usually what I do is I take a couple of handfuls of, of, of good organic NPK fertilizer into a fairly large amount of mix if I'm doing a mix of my own uh, to like a wheelbarrow, maybe two or three handfuls and give it a really good mix. So there's a little bit everywhere and uh, that that is plenty for your your seed starting. Watering. Um, as I mentioned, at the box stores, these folks come out and you see them with the hose and they just... That'll keep it till seven o'clock tonight. No, it won't. No, it won't. But they water the plant down, and when when the leaves of plants get wet, especially over wet, and they can't shed, and they're not, they haven't put on full large root systems yet, and they can't handle a little bit of wind, and knock it off them. It, it leads to a lot of diseases and potential for fungal and uh, dampening off, and all kinds of things. The the best way you can water, in my opinion in most instances, is watering from the bottom. So the plant's in a tray. There's a small amount of water in the bottom of the tray. The pot sits in the water. The, the moisture wicks up to where the seed is, and the plant has plenty of water. If you're doing that, and you pull your plant trays out, and they're absolutely bone dry a few centimeters under the soil, you're running your water level too low. If you pull them out and they feel sopping wet you're running it too deep. What you really want is the top to be almost dry and then it get moister as you go down. So it takes a little finagling to kind of figure it out. I usually find with six packs, 
right about a quarter, somewhere between a quarter and a half inch, maybe five-eighths of an inch at, at the high side of water in your tray is sufficient. I think the best way you can water plants from the top is to get a standard garden sprayer, like people use to spray evil chemicals with, um, and set it to a mist, fill it with water, pump it up, and, and mist on the surface. And once your plants get up to a certain height, you kind of mist underneath the little canopies if you're going to water from the top. That all works. A, a watering can, it's just... You've got this little plant. It's only got like four leaves on it, four real leaves on it now. And one drop, one drop of water out of that can, it's not even a drop, it's a stream. This is, it's, it's as wide as the plant itself. It just beats the hell out of it. So if, if you are gentle with your watering, you'll have a lot better results. And if you don't overwater, you'll have a lot better results. Um, those are my two preferred methods of, of watering. Uh, if I'm doing things outside, I will take a garden hose and put it on that kind of mist and kind of mist the stuff. Certain plants do better with that than others. Some still get wetted down. If whatever you do makes your plant look sad, it like kind of mats it down, don't really touch it. Maybe pick it up and shake it a little bit and put it back down and give it a little bit. It'll dry off. It'll come back. It'll recover. It'll be happy. It's a survivor. Plants are survivors. But whatever you just did, you need to you need to dial it back and not do it that way again. You need to figure out what makes the plant look happy either right after or soon thereafter you've done your watering. Figuring out when to start your plants. This is where it's critical that you take a look at your your average last frost date and then you work backwards based on how big you want that plant to be when it goes in the ground. And I'm going to tell you that for most plants, you want four to six weeks. I told you my grandfather did eight weeks on tomatoes. He did. He also had a huge cold frame. You know, um, He had a lot of space to work with. And he was really trying to get the most out of the season that he possibly could because we were subsistence gardeners. But especially if you're going with quality LED grow lights and you're going with reflectors or a grow tent or something like that, you have complete control over your temperatures. You can get the kind of growth in four weeks that people are getting with eight weeks using you know, short day length, cloudy days, bad temperatures, all that other stuff. So again, that lets you shorten the duration of time you need to be taking care of that plant. Tomatoes are really slow growing from seed, so you might be more in the neighborhood of six weeks. I would prefer to say this plant's not ready to go outdoors yet and give it another week indoors, then feel it's too big and put it out like right at the edge and I think we're good and we're kind of past our last frost date and everything should be okay. And then I turn the weather guesser on who said, we're going to have a low next week, the lowest day forecasted is 38 degrees. And then, well, tomorrow we have this unexpected weather event and we'll be hitting 29. Oh, shit. And then you're out there putting row covers and blankets and trying to get them to survive. And sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. You know, usually that 31 degree forecast, if you get everything covered and it's only there for a couple hours, it'll make it. But the, those 31 degree forecasts have a tendency to become 28 degrees a lot of times. So I'm, again, 
big on let's get that plan as big and healthy as possible and let's get it out there when we know it's safe. So let's look at that last frost date and let's add at least a week to it. And that's kind of the week that I want to plan on putting my plants in the ground if I'm planting in ground. If I'm using grow tunnels, if I'm in a greenhouse, if I'm using any kind of season extension technology, um, then I'm, I'm fine going even maybe a week before our average last frost date because I know I can handle some frost if not freezes, right? So you, you, you got to balance that. When it comes time, though, to put that plant in the ground, whether you've had it in a cold frame, whether you've had it in a south-facing window with a reflector, whether you've had it in a beautiful grow tent, whether you've had it in a filtered greenhouse with supplemental heat, wherever you've had it, it's been in nirvana compared to where it's going. It's about to go out into the cold ground. Bugs are going to try to eat it. Um, wind is going to blow. There will be no soft mist of your, your, your spraying wand. It will be the harsh reality of a, a spring thunderstorm. It's, it's not ready to go that uh, right away. It needs to go through something called hardening off. And the way that I usually harden off my plants is I take them outside at least four days before I'm going to plant them. And when I do that, I look for a place that's going to get at least 60% of the day it's going to be in shade. And maybe more. And I'm going to set that plant there in the shade, and it's going to get some sun. And I'm going to try to find a place where I can look at how shadows track And it maybe gets shade, it maybe gets 20% of the day it gets sunlight that day, and the rest is in full shade. It'll be fine. We're not looking for a lot of growth here. We're looking to strengthen it. I'm going to move those plants to where the next day they're going to get something like 40% of the day they're going to get sun, and 60% they're going to get shade. And I'm going to move those plants to where they're going to get about 50-50. And I'm going to leave them there a couple days. And then I'm going to put them out into the garden. And, and I might have to even be, go a little bit more harsh with them before they go into the garden with sun, depending on how the sun is hitting my garden. But we don't have to take it to the same level. Here's why. Remember the box stores and all the horror stories I gave you about the plants drying out? So you have your plant in this little six-pack, or maybe you've potted it up by now into like little two- or four-inch pots or something like that. And it's out, and you water it, and the sun hits it, and the sun starts drying out that pot. Well, it can dry out that pot relatively quickly if it's there for six hours, five hours, something like that. When we put it into the garden, and we have dip, deep, you know, mulch soils and all that, and, and what have you, and we've watered well, even though it's going to be in that sun all day long. It's also got a lot bigger of a battery life of that water before the, the drip irrigation or the misters or the regular irrigation or the next rainstorm comes along. So that is how the way you have to think about it when you are um, putting your seeds finally out into the, to the garden. I kind of like to talk here about the fact that not everything needs to be started indoors or from seed. Generally, a lot of your plants will do really well. In fact, will do better if they're direct sown, and it's important to kind of figure out what those plants are. First of all, if the plant has a very long uh, growing season and, and, and your growing season matches it well, so for instance, in many parts of the country, you're, you're something like a winter squash, 
That's a plant that's going to grow all the way almost until, you know, Halloween, Thanksgiving, and it might need 90 days to produce, uh, and, and it might actually produce in less than that, even though the packet says so. And, and you have a 120 or 130 day growing season. That plant, especially if you're growing a lot of it, they're a big plant. Starting it indoors probably won't gain you much. It, it really won't. What, where those plants actually kind of make sense a lot of times is, After your tender plants are, are done and you're ready to plant those, since they have so much time and you're not really worried about them, they are fast, aggressive growers, sometimes they're susceptible to things like cutworms that will come along and eat them when they're young and tender and just coming out of the ground. But if they get up to where they're you know, nice and thick, the cutworms will leave them alone. So then we put those in larger pots. We start them. We get them up to that stem's woody, and then we put them out. Maybe we're going to plant 10 or 20 of them like that or something like that. That kind of plant... Your cucumbers your, and, and stuff like that makes sense like that. Um, I don't think beans make sense to plant in pots. They actually are susceptible to cutworms too. Uh, it can be a big problem, but it's just not, to me, economical to start them indoors. Your root crops don't make sense to start indoors. Your carrots, uh, your beets, things like that, because it, it deforms the root, and then they're just never right again. Parsnips potato, uh, your larger plants. I've seen a lot of people buying corn plants at the box stores. You know, paying $3 for, it's like four stalks of corn in one little pot. Well, you only grow one of them out of there. So they're paying four bucks for one stalk of corn. I, you got to grow a lot of corn to get the pollination and all going. I, I don't know what they're up to, but whatever they want, that's fine. But corn doesn't make sense to start in, in, in seed pots. You can, You actually could make a case for it, I guess, if you wanted to uh, put out 100 corn plants and you got the, the really high-density cells where one tray holds 100 and you put them out into that tray about two to two and a half to three weeks maximum, probably two weeks maximum from when you're going to put them in the ground, and you grow them up till they're a nice, healthy, thick-looking little monkey grass-looking strand, uh, and then you went out and planted your corn – You could get it in the ground earlier that way from a standpoint of you could do that two weeks before your last frost date and then put that out there when you'd normally just be able to plant your corn, right? So I guess I wouldn't do it, but I guess you could, but it generally probably isn't the best practice. Seeds in general, the best case for a seed is that it germinate where it will live its entire life that nothing ever disturb its root system other than the microorganisms that it coexists with. The reason we even do this indoor thing, there's really two reasons. The primary reason is we're growing plants outside of their native range of temperature. Did you know that peppers are perennials? Peppers are not annuals. Uh, some of you know this and you're saying, duh. And some of you are... Sitting there going, Jack, you've just gone, you've just gone out in the left field. You've, you've flipped over the rail into the, 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 uh, the bullpen and the pitcher's laughing at you. That's how far in left field you've gone. Um, no, I promise you, capsaicin are perennials. They're not very long lived perennials. You know, average, you're talking five to six years. But peppers in their native climate are perennial shrubs. They're perennial shrubs. We have members of this audience that have heard me say this, that have taken up the challenge, 
They get a pepper plant, nice big healthy pepper plant in the fall. Before it freezes, they prune it, they dig it out of the ground, they put it in a flower pot, they bring it indoors, they keep it indoors or heat a greenhouse or whatever through the winter. They may even get a few peppers off it in spring. They bring it back out and they put it in the ground or some people just grow them for season after season in large pots now that have had them three and four years. They're a perennial. So obviously this plant is not adapted to growing and then dropping seed in a single season in a climate where it freezes. That's not what a pepper does. Now it happens. There's vol I see volunteer peppers popping up all the time in the right situations, but it's not you don't see wild peppers growing in the countryside of Kentucky because they're just not adapted to that. It's just a, a fundamental reality. So the primary reason that we do this is to either get a plant started early when it's too cold for it to grow and get it a head start so we can make the most out of it during the, the part of our season that matches the climate that that plant can perform optimally in. We actually have a, it's the same reason, but it's flipped on its head a little bit, and it's one that people don't think about, and it's something you would do in the summer. As you're planting a fall garden, a lot of times, a lot of plants can handle some frost and things like that. Broccoli is a good example, cauliflowers, all your brassias, your kales. All these plants do just fine with frost and even the first freezes many times, especially if they're big and strong by the time they happen. Spinaches and lettuces can handle frost. But if we go outside in August and put the seed in the ground, it bakes and it dies and it doesn't grow and it's sad. So the other reason that we start seeds is so that we can have them growing in an optimal season on the opposite side. So we're starting when it's too hot, we're growing them when it's too cold. But that's all about seasonality. The other reason we do it, and it's less of a reason, but as I've alluded to already, is just to get a plant that's up and healthy and large so it's not small and easily uh, damaged by pests and things like that. I remember one year in Pennsylvania, it was later in the season, I was looking for stuff I could still put in the ground. I was learning as a kid, I wanted to grow new things. I talked to a gentleman down at the hardware store and he, I wanted to grow spinach. He's like, you can't grow it this time of year. You can grow Swiss chard. And what's that? Well, it tastes like spinach and all. That's when I first discovered Swiss chard. And uh, I put some in the ground and it, it didn't do really well. And even though it was because of heat, Simply by putting it in some plants, keeping it more in a shaded area, getting it up and growing, then putting it in the ground, it did just fine. So that would be the other of the two main reasons, just to get it started no matter what's going on, even if it's going to go on the ground right away in a, a more controlled environment. So if that doesn't apply, if the plant can go directly in the ground, if the, if the growing season is there, etc., then you're better off planting it right where it will live out its entire life. Anyway, I hope this has got you thinking forward to your, your spring planning. Um, I know I'm thinking about it a lot. I'll be doing very little conventional gardening this year with the aquaponics system going in. Uh, we've had some damage to it with the freezing. David and I have uh, looked at making some improvements to it. We'll take a few days in February, get everything tuned up. And I need to talk to him about getting my uh, frames welded up for me so I can get the whole grow bed, uh, all the grow beds uh, fitted out. And I'm planning on putting a second grow tunnel in this year uh, that won't be as wrapped in as my quail aviary, but we'll have a uh, 50% shade cloth over it, another 50 foot by 10 foot grow tunnel. And uh, 
with those two, I really see no reason to have conventional gardens, but I'll be doing a lot of seed starting because of that. For the last couple seasons, I haven't done much of this because I've gone so much to a perennial and animal-based systems. Uh, I haven't done a lot of annual gardening. This place that I live in is just harsh. I have one little small uh, six-bed garden, and I don't really spend a lot of time with it. I, I don't really get as much out of it as I could because... It's just not what my main focus is anymore. But by tying it into aquaponics and wicking beds, I think we'll do a lot more annual production, which will be good because I like the, pro the produce that comes out of it. Anyway, again, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, I want to encourage you to start looking through all the seed catalogs and stuff like that. If you're like me, you've been getting them for so many years, you get you know stacks of them every year. I get them from Burpee. I get them from Parks and whatever. And I always look at them. And if there's something that I want that I can't get from somebody that supports us, I'll buy it. I don't have anything, you know, say every company that doesn't support us sucks. I'm not that type of a person. Uh, but, you know, if I can get it from someone that supports us, then then I do, I guess is kind of my point. So, you know, check. We, again, we have Terroir, we have Any Seed, we have Victory Seed Company, and we have High Mowing. Those four have supported this show Uh, three of those four have supported the show for over four years, and, and one came on board about a year and a half ago. And, uh, you know, support the people that support us, because that makes it far more valuable to get somebody else to support us. And there's, between those four companies, there's an awful lot of variety to choose from in what you plant in your backyard. And again, links to the, uh, the eight different plants that I covered as things you might want to consider growing this year uh, are in the show notes, uh, just where they're listed in the bullet points. I also have links to the uh, six-pack containers that I use, the Kingbow Reflector 45-watt LED grow light, uh, an example of the Sterilite shelf. I don't think that really matters to get something that fits your needs, and the plant tent. And again, remember I said that plant tent comes in when it's four feet deep, where you could actually have uh, two two sets of uh, shelving uh, in it and be in it. And, you know, I would do them kind of long, facing each other, If I did that, but I don't know that anybody in really needs to go that large. When it comes to seed starting, again, a hundred plants to a 200 plants, that's a lot of plants. And being able to set up a system like that with, uh, that much control and that much technology for 300 bucks. Again, I think back to my grandmother's system that was nowhere near as advanced as that, uh, all the way back in the eighties being almost $500. And I realize that the technology we have available today, and it's only going to get better. And what I'm looking at doing is setting up myself with this own system to do some starting plants this year, but trying to think long-term, maybe one of my upstairs rooms, into codifying that more into something that produces uh, microgreens and baby greens at a time of the year when you just can't grow them outside. Because honestly, if I start 60 to 80 plants a year, I'm golden. So I'd still have some space even this time of year when I'd be starting to get stuff ready to go out into the main system. We have very, very long growing seasons here. But it, it would be nice to have that complete flexibility. And that way it's not a one-trick pony. So when I look at making investments, and this is just a good practical idea, it, the way I look at it, if I'm going to buy those grow lights and I'm going to put them and set them up and run them six weeks a year and start seeds, and then put seeds out, and then, you know, the fall comes and I'm done for the year, it's a little harder for me to spend that two to 300 bucks depending on how big of a system I want. And I started to think more like Nick Ferguson and the advice he gave last week. If I'm going to use it for spring and fall, and I'm going to use it for this time of year when I can't really produce a lot of uh, vegetative matter for myself to produce that, 
uh, and, and have fresh salads and stuff like that going on, uh, it starts to be a lot more attractive to me. Uh, or if I'm going to go large scale again and start you know, producing 300 plants a year per session. So you have to decide what works best for you. But I, I really advise you to take a look at the LED light technology. And don't be married to the equipment that I've, I've linked to today. See what else is out there. This is what I've come up with for kind of the scale and budget uh, that I was trying to look for. Certainly there are other things that can be done. Anyway, with that, I hope you enjoyed today's show and I uh, hope you're excited about the spring because no matter how cold it is, spring is coming. It always does. It always does, just like winter always comes. Anyway, uh, if you enjoyed today's show and you want to support us, the best way you can do that is join the Member Support Brigade. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. There you'll see the list, the list of companies you get discounts uh, from, you know, including the four uh, seed suppliers. And those are in the benefits section of the MSB. So consider joining that today. Uh, next up, I, I wanted to actually share something with you, um, a recipe. that uh, Not really a recipe, a thing I made, because uh, I don't really do recipes that, uh, we, that David Siegler put some pictures of on Facebook. And, man, it looked pretty good for something a redneck put together. So this is something you can do with your, your venison shanks. And you can certainly do this with any... Uh, Any shank that you might uh, use or any bones that you might use from like lamb or beef would be best, I think, for this. So I am not the guy that cuts all the, the meat off of my, uh, my shanks of my deer and uh, makes them into grinder fodder because they have so much silver sheen in them that they just mess grinders up. They mess grinders up really bad. So what I usually do is I, I either slow cook them or braise them or something like that, and this time I actually tried sous vide. And I did them for like 22 hours, and I was not impressed. I, sous vide, I'm, it's changed my life in some ways. I love it. But, you know, I've seen people do shanks for 48 hours. Maybe that's what it takes. I don't know. But uh, I kind of think these tougher cuts that you're better off, you know, with the old school slow cooking for six hours or five hours. But either way, you do your shanks, you, you have them for dinner or whatever, and you're done. I took the bones. Uh, and I roasted them in the oven for about uh, 40 minutes at about 400 degrees. So they were nice and brown. They had some leftover pieces stuck to them and what have you. And I had some leftover meat, and I kind of took all of that, and I threw that into a pot with water with dehydrated celery, dehydrated uh, garlic, dehydrated onions, and dehydrated carrots, and a big old honking thing of parsley and some salt and pepper. And the pepper, I just used whole peppercorns. I threw that in there, and I simmered that for about 14 hours total. I think I had it on the oven for maybe like, you know, six, seven hours one night, and then just left it sit on the stove overnight, uh, cooled down, and uh, ran it again uh, in the morning. Uh, first, I took all the fat off the top, and the, that way it was nice and clean broth because uh, it was solid because it cooled down, and then ran it, you know, pretty much all day. And I uh, got two quarts of gorgeous deep brown bone broth out of it, put those into some core jars, threw them in my refrigerator. My buddy David's coming over, and because uh, the, the shanks weren't that great, I wanted to kind of make it up to him and give him something good to eat since he was coming over to help me with stuff. And uh, I took that quart of stock that was really deep brown, deep flavored, dropped that in a pot, and then one and a half more quarts of just clean water because it was very concentrated at that point. Nice, clear broth. Brought that up to a simmer. Uh, and into that went the leftover uh, deer meat, and then I had about a dozen duck hearts from the last time we culled ducks. 
and I cut those into thirds and uh, gave them a little marinade, some olive oil and some herbs, and I sautéed those in a skillet so they wouldn't be boiled. Boiled heart's not good. And so those, those were set aside for the end, some shiitake mushrooms, some broccoli slaw. And I'm talking like I didn't make this complicated. I was at the grocery store. I knew I wanted to do this. They sell the pre-made broccoli slaw in a little clamshell. Uh, so some of that one in there and some snow peas. And I threw, I got the stuff nice and hot and threw all the veg and mushrooms, the mushrooms in first. They cooked a little bit, the meat in to warm up. And, uh, then, uh, once the mushrooms were, cause they take a little while, the shiitakes, I threw the veg in and just gave it a stir and brought it back to a simmer and killed it. So it was still a little bit crispy. And, uh, when we, you know, put that in the bowl and we put the duck hearts on top of it, it was basically redneck pho. Or redneck pho, depending on how you pronounce it. I say pho, but the correct pronunciation is pho. That's actually accurate. Uh, but it's a Vietnamese thing, and you might see restaurants that say P-H-O. Like there's one around here that's a, a franchise called it's called Pho 95. It's Pho 95, but Pho 95 sounds like 495, so that's what we call it. Anyway, think about you guys that are hunters, all those bones and stuff you throw away, man. This was like fantastic meal. So I thought I'd throw that as a little story for you guys at the end. And, and then that brings me to the other way you can support our show that has nothing to do with, with pho or pho, but it does have to do today with a, a food substance, sort of a food. It's something you use to make food, uh, and that's the Amazon item of the day. But you don't have to buy the Amazon item of the day. You just go to tspaz.com the next time you want to shop on Amazon, tspaz.com. You're going to shop on Amazon, you go to tspaz.com, you click the link, you're over to Amazon, boom, bang, done, you do your shopping, buy what you were going to buy anyway, you support the show. Couldn't be easier, doesn't cost you anything, doesn't even really take you any more time, just go to tspaz instead of Amazon, click a link and do your deal, right? But I put an item of review up every day, and today's item of the day is uh, kind of a, a really cool thing. It is Hawaiian Red Aaliyah. Sea salt. And I'm probably saying Aaliyah wrong, but that's what it looks A-L-A-E-A. And I actually looked up how to pronounce it, and there's a big discrepancy. Unlike pho, I can't find a definitive answer, but I'm going to say it's Aaliyah sea salt, Hawaiian red sea salt. Now, the way I found out about this stuff, there's a restaurant here called Ellerby Fine Foods. And through the, the, the summer period of time when we have lots of eggs and we can take on more than one restaurant customer, they're a customer of ours. They're a farm-to-fork restaurant, and they do our eggs only at lunchtime, and they do them on the burgers at lunchtime. And they, people just kill it. Like It's like so popular. They, they want to actually get product from us year-round, but we just can't supply them year-round at the volume we need to for a restaurant. But they are a good customer. So Dorothy and I are like, we should do business with our customers. We should go to, if we're going to go out to eat, we should. So we went to their restaurant. We went for dinner so we couldn't have our own product, which kind of sucked. But uh, we had really a great meal. So fantastic little place. And it's, you know, farm to fork as much as they can. Now, you can't get everything farm to fork from Central Texas, including salt. So it wasn't a shock to me that the salt might not come from Central Texas. We're not a big salt producing region. But they came out with some, like, you know, bread and some other little little charcuterie and stuff that was just part of the, the meal. And uh, they brought this little bowl out, and it had these little red crystals in it. It's a little small amount, maybe a, a tablespoon of, of this stuff, like it was gold or something. And I kind of felt like it was by the end of the night and found out it ain't gold. It don't cost nowhere near gold does. And she said, it's, it's actually salt. It's Hawaiian red salt. Try it. Not put it on your food. Try it. So, like... I usually don't eat salt, but I take a pinch of this, and I ate it, and I'm like, oh, my God. 
That's fantastic. Dorothy tried it, and uh, we did use some on our food. We're sitting there eating little bits of this stuff like it was salt candy or something. So I get home, and I'm like, you know, they gave us such a small amount of it. Like, is this stuff like... You know, ten dollars an ounce or something. You know, is it is it salt gold or whatever? I look it up, and it's not cheap compared to kosher salt or something like that. But it's it's not real expensive. The uh, the product that I have for you today, uh, two pounds of it's sixteen ninety nine. Uh, five pounds of it is twenty one ninety nine, which is definitely a better deal. And it comes in coarse or fine. Um, it's not something I use every day. Like every time I'm going to use salt, I use this stuff. But it's really great on like grilled vegetables uh it's great on anything that it's going to show up on it adds like an aesthetic thing uh it has an incredible flavor it's it's totally different than any other salt you've ever eaten and part of it's what gives it its red color so this red salt actually isn't red salt it's sea salt which would be white and they call it a lea salt because it is mixed with a red ali volcanic clay So there's a volcanic clay that's mixed with uh, that I believe the Hawaiians do because it actually helps the salt to be less clumpy and things like that in a very humid climate. And it helps the salt kind of to stay the way that you want it to stay. Well, because it's sea salt, it already has a lot more trace minerals and things like that. But that clay brings another kick of that. So you've got all this great trace minerals going on. Now, if you have more trace minerals, you have to have less sodium chloride. If you have more of one thing, you have to have less of another. It's the only way that can work. So it's lower in sodium. It's not low sodium, right? But it's lower in sodium than table salt. And yet you'll probably use a little bit less of it because it has, I don't know, you're going to have to try it if you want to try it, a, a more interesting flavor. And, uh, again, pasta, this is great on, and it looks cool. Like if you, I'm not a pasta guy, but if you do pastas and you have like a lightly, uh, like a light, lightly done pasta with like a, a cream sauce that's a, a light color instead of a red color and you hit it with a sprinkling of this you know like you would with kosher salt then it's got these red granules it looks cool on corn on the cob and, and again it still tastes great it tastes again it's unique so you have to give it a try and it's something different i mean it's something if you have friends over and you make it part of what you're doing they're like wow that's different and you know what it's best on the rim of a glass in a good margarita made with lime tequila and contro and nothing else except ice and maybe a little squirt of sparkling water to add a little fizz and put a little chemistry into your your uh, your buzz. That's how you make a margarita. If you think margaritas are made with mixer, you're wrong. That's not a margarita. They think they're going to fishbowl glass, you're wrong. Highball or lowball glass, uh, salt, and your, your, your booze and your lime juice. And some of this red salt, give it a shot. Again, this is the, the brand I recommend is uh, from a company called San Francisco Salt Company. They're, they're a good company. Uh, I know for a fact this, this salt is sourced from where it's supposed to come from in Hawaii. Um, and that's important because be, since this has gotten out and become a foodie thing, it's been really good for that local economy there, which is not, you know, your Honolulu tourist mecca. Uh, it's a place where st people are still making somewhat of a li living off the land the way that their ancestors did. And if you ever want to check out something really cool, check out the way the Hawaiians do salt. And it's a very important thing in their island culture. And it's if you think about it, it's a perfect solution. They're surrounded by fish. Uh, they have you know, schools come through and they can catch more than they can use. And if you have salt and fish, you have preserved fish. And the sea is right there to give you the salt. So this is cool stuff. Check it out and remember, do your shopping on Amazon.com through tspaz.com. 
and you will help me uh, help you by helping support my show so I can continue to do it and provide you with the content that you come listen to daily. So what is our song of the day? I was thinking Hawaiian... You know, Hawaiian stuff, you know, and Jimmy Buffett and all. And uh, I thought, you know, I played a lot of Jimmy Buffett, and I've played this song by Jimmy Buffett before, but it was the cover he did, and the song is Southern Cross. And, and boy, if you want to think about the ocean, then this is the song, Southern Cross. And uh, I thought I would go back and play the original by Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And, in fact, the very original where um, it, is, it is not even um, – Uh, what's his name, uh, singing, uh, David Crosby, because David Crosby was out of the group for a while. So Stephen Stills is actually the lead singer in the album released in uh, 1982. And uh, it's it's really a great song. And I, I wanted to tell you a little bit about it in some ways that you might not really be familiar with. So you'll hear the following lo locations Uh, the Southern Islands, Papati, Marquesas, and Avalon in this song. And in this song, the sailor is coming from the west to the east, heading toward California. The Southern Islands are Polynesia. Papati is the capital of French Polynesia on the island of Tahiti. The Marquesas are a group of volcanic islands in French Polynesia northeast of Tahiti. And Avalon... One of the, the only places that I've been is actually Avalon, California, an island city in Santa Catalina Island in California. And uh, the Catalina Islands are pretty cool. And right there, like the big town is, and it's not big, is Avalon. And I remember being there with my wife and my son when we were out in California one year and thinking, this is the place. You know, this is the place. This is the place in that song. And I wasn't sure if it was, and I looked it up, and that, yep, this is, this is the Avalon they're talking about. And the line is, in a noisy bar in Avalon, I tried to call you, but on the midnight watch, I realized why twice you ran away. And, and what this song is about is the ending of a relationship, and this guy, I think what people think is that he, he went on this great quest to find her again, but what the song is really about is he went on this quest to find himself and to get over her. And sailed across this this thing. And Stephen Stills wrote this song, actually taking it from a song that someone else wrote and doing a rewrite of it. And you can learn about that in the Wikipedia page about it. I'll, I'll put a link if you have that much interest, if you're a song nerd like me. But it was actually written after he'd gone on a long boat ride after a divorce. And, and in the end, all he has left is his ship, and he'll find someone else. But he knows he really won't find anything else. Nothing can replace what he had or make him forget the Southern Cross, which is the constellation that you would see on that journey, which is this beautiful constellation if you can manage it, imagine it from the middle of the ocean without the drowning lights of the city around it. It's a cool song. It's one of the best songs to me ever written, and I thought it would be a good one to end today's uh, show on. Since it's so damn cold where most of you are, and we talked about spring today because it gives you hope, on that journey you'll get there. And we talked about Hawaiian sea salt and the islands, and all their different islands, island life is island life. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Got out of town on a boat from the southern islands Sailing the reach before a following sea 
was making for the trades on the outside and the downhill run to Papa Eddie off the wind on this heading live of Marquesas we got 80 feet of a waterline nicely making way in a noisy bar in Avalon